This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Jason Lim, what an outstanding young entrepreneur. So Jason is the Chief of Staff at YBF Ventures, Australia's Centre of Tech Innovation since 2011. YBF's primary goal has been the same since day one. Success for the startups that call YBF home, powerful collaborations for its partners, an unmatched opportunity for its investors. Jason himself has been an investor and an advisor to startups for the past six years and is an entrepreneurial fellow at the University of Melbourne as an alumnus of the Melbourne Accelerator Program. I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down and speaking with Jason here in Melbourne and learning of his journey and his story and the importance of owning your path. Take a listen. Jason, Welcome to the Peers Project. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. No worries. Good to be on. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, you know, I reached out to Courtney, um, one of your colleagues here at uh, YBF Ventures and in Melbourne, because you guys are obviously, you know, one of the leading Australian um, tech communities. And when she told me about you and your background um, as an investor and as an advisor to startups, I knew I had to interview you. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. No, looking forward to it. I think we're going to have a good conversation today. Love it. Um, but before we go into your work, I want to start with a question that I often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and your career so far? That's an awesome question. <laughs> it's actually got a lot to do with my career. So my dad was one of the first people um, in the bank in Malaysia to pick up computers. So my background was I, I was born and bred in Malaysia. I grew up in Kuala Lumpur for 17 years before coming here to Australia. I've been here for quite a while now. And yeah, he was one of the first people in, in the bank to pick up a computer and he left the bank because it was it was hard in Malaysia to make money when you're working for a big company. So he went off to start his own tech company where he would consult to these banks in terms of how they would design their front-end uh, user interface for ATMs. So I think that really influenced my career decision. My mom was a homemaker as well um, and that influenced me in, in different ways. Um, from my dad's side, I saw firsthand what entrepreneurship was like. I saw the ability for it to to give people the opportunity to be more than you know their circumstances had put them into. In my dad's case, I wouldn't have been here in Australia if he hadn't worked um, long hours, long nights 
to, to start his own company, to launch it, and to go through the various trials and tribulations. From my mom's side, you know, she was a homemaker. She, she sacrificed a lot to get myself and my brother uh, a good education. She looked after us really well. So I think part of why I want to do this as well is because it's about giving back, I think, to my, to my folks as well, showing them that, you know, they've given me this opportunity to take risks in life and to aspire to be more. And I think if I don't do that, I, I'm not doing them justice. So that's the brief background. I love that. And I think it's always so interesting to know what, you know, what the entrepreneur's background is, what you guys, how you've grown up. And for you, it's so evident that it really was that your parents influence um, in such a good way as well. Not, you know, the traditional path or, you know, just go get a job. It was very much so, you know, as you were saying, you know, just go out on your own. So I think that's super interesting. It makes a lot more sense now when I look at what you've done. So let's go into, um, firstly, you know, Jason, the early years. Yeah. So I find it fascinating. You're from Malaysia, spent quite a bit of time in KL myself. I love it. Um, so talk to me a bit about what it was like growing up in that environment um, before you came to Oz. Yeah, sure. Like any Asian country, I think growing up there, you grew up in an education system where they teach you to, to fit in a box, I would say. It's very different compared to here. You know, back there, it was about memorization, a lot of rote learning, but I think one of the great things about being in a place like Malaysia, education aside, is the diversity that you get. Um, I grew up in a really diverse country. I think 50% of people in Malaysia are, are Muslim by background. Um, the rest are a mix of Christians, Buddhism, um, other religions. So you, you really grew up in a really diverse environment, and I think that teaches you different lessons. Coming here, I think it's, it's shown me that there are a lot of opportunities you know, in Australia that you don't get back in Malaysia. Um, for instance, you know, being an entrepreneur in Malaysia is significantly harder because of the lack of capital, um, because of the lack of risk taking. And I think that was, that's probably an important thing to bring up as well. When you grow up in Malaysia, you don't, you're not taught to take risks. You're taught to stick to the norm, try to, you know, um, stick to your elders, I guess, give them the respect they need. When you get out of university, when you get out of school, you want to look for a stable job. You work for a big four accounting firm or a consulting firm. And I think, you know, they've got good reasons for that. Asian countries just don't have that safety net like Western countries do. And working for these big companies, it, it grants you security so that you can actually provide for your family. And, you know, but it's, it's, it doesn't inspire you. And I don't think a lot of people are inspired by that path. We're seeing these days, a lot of young people in Asian countries want to take more risks. And I think that's a re really, really recent phenomenon. But yeah, growing up there, I think it's, it's taught me a lot of lessons. It's shown me a difference between the two cultures. I think it's inspired me to try to work harder as well. I try to not take the opportunities I've been given for granted. And um, yeah. I love that. And I find that so interesting because just on that point of, you know, they, you know, people in the people in Asian countries kind of have to go out and get that secure job. I find that interesting because I still find that, I, don't, I mean, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, Yeah. but I still find that so many of us, um, even in Australia, go out and seek that secure job and that secure secure path. Um, you know, the number of my friends who are at the big four or, or whatnot, um, which is fantastic and, you know, obviously so hard to get into. Um, but I just find it fascinating how still in Australia, there's definitely that culture hmm. of when you finish university, you know, you go work at a big company and that's kind of the, what people see is the path to success. What do you think about that? Did you see that, you know, obviously we'll go into, but you were at Melbourne Uni. Did you see that happen, you know, 
people around you doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Australia is still not a very risk-taking nation, I'd say. And it's probably because of the level of comfort you get here. Wages are high. Even the minimum wage is relatively high compared to what you get in the U.S. and other Asian countries. And um, yeah, I think there's no need to try and strive for something because you're so comfortable here. But I'm not the kind of person who would say, you know, don't work for a big company. I think you... It's about understanding who you are and figuring out what kind of life you want to lead. Some people really like the security. Some people have other focuses in life. They want a family or they want, you know, they, they enjoy the kind of big company dynamics and being able to work on these big things because, you know, big companies do work on big projects. You know, that's undoubted. And um, it, it, I think it's about understanding yourself. I think it's about understanding um, what kind of person you are, what kind of risks you're willing to take, what kind of career you want in life. And I think... Australia is great because even if you wanted to take that risk, you can. If you want to take a risk in Australia to start your own company, there is enough support out there for you to go and start your own company. If you want to go for the more traditional career path to be a consultant or to, to be an engineer, you can do that too. And I think that's what's really great about Australia. In Melbourne University, yes, historically, you know, they've they've pushed a lot of, you know, I, I studied economics and finance, which is the most traditional kind of career path you can get. And at career fairs, you would see the big four accounting firms and big four consulting firms. Yeah, they, they still don't push entrepreneurship really hard. But what we're seeing is that there are a group of students, um, you know, the new wave of students, they, they want to explore these things. So as part of my role here at YBF Ventures, it's also about engaging with the student community to sort of figure out how we can help them understand entrepreneurship from a young age. So it's really great that they're taking the initiative, even if they don't get into entrepreneurship, at least they're exploring it in the early days, which is something that I didn't have the opportunity to. I jumped in straight away and sort of got a trial by fire, if you would. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's great. And universities these days are also realizing that the jobs of tomorrow are going to be very entrepreneurship-like in nature, even within big companies. So Melbourne University, for example, they've got a program called the Melbourne Accelerator Program now. I was a graduate of that program as well, where they invested $20,000 in your company. They put mentors, sort of like a traditional accelerator program, but backed by the university. So it's great to see these initiatives come online. Mm, totally. I find all of that so fascinating. I have so many questions to ask following that. Um, so I think the first one is, you know, you said that you personally didn't have the opportunity to, you know, gain these entrepreneurial experiences right at the start. You kind of dived headfirst. Yeah. So what was your experience? Let's walk through that. So you came in, you came from Malaysia, you started at Melbourne Uni. What was your experience? You know, you said that you um, did quite a traditional degree yeah. in commerce. So how did you choose that degree to study? And kind of what was that experience like for you? Yeah, sure. So a lot, a lot to unpack in there. So yeah, I studied a traditional degree, economics and finance. Growing up, I always knew that I would either end up in consulting or I'd end up in finance or I'd end up starting a company. So really three viable options. I think the company, you know, starting a company route was really interesting because of my dad's background. Um, he really sparked my interest in entrepreneurship. At around the second year in university, I sort of saw what my friends were doing. I realized that a lot of them were running the same race, I think. They were, they were running the race of finishing a degree and then finding a job after. And I didn't want that. Um, it's hard to stay in Australia as well because, you know, you, you have to find a visa to stay in the country. And for a lot of people, it's either you get the right kind of education, you study accounting or you study science. In my case, I didn't study any of those. Or you, you worked your and you worked your butt off to find a company who would keep you in the, in the country. So I, I sort of went the, the latter route. 
I, uh, when I was in second year of university, before anyone was looking for jobs within my friend group, I sort of made a list of probably 50 companies I wanted to work with, I think. I sent a lot of them emails saying, hey, you know, really interested in being an intern, really interested in trying out for this role. You can create a role if you want as well, happy to work out for free. And only two people replied, really. Um, yeah, so it, it was a small conversion rate, I'd say. But out of the two people, only YBF really continued the conversation towards the end. So I was really fortunate in that case. Um, the founders, you know, Darcy and, and Stuart, uh, took me under their wing from that day onwards. And I guess the, the rest is history from there. Wow, I love that. And I think that initiative that you took early on, it's so funny that sometimes we think, oh, what we do at uni, it doesn't really matter. It's all what happens after and what job we get after. And, but it's so interesting to see, I mean, for lots of our peers out there listening, you know, that when you take that initiative early on and you just kind of hold on to something and I mean, you were ruthless in it. 50 employers that you, you know, could potentially, you know, you were wanting to work at and only two as you said, low conversion rate, but clearly paid off. It worked, yeah. Um, super cool. Okay. Yeah. So I want to go a bit deeper into um, your time on the Melbourne Accelerator program. So you said that, you know, you can obviously would love to know a bit about it, more about it, but you said that um, the university gave you guys like $20,000 to fuel your idea and to fuel your business. So firstly, how did you get involved in that? What was your idea? And how did you decide that you had to go out and pursue that? Yeah, sure. So the idea actually originated from uh, a person I worked with at YBF named Joe Valente. He's really the brains and the founder behind it. So Joe had this idea where, you know, as a law student or anyone practicing law, you would use a resource called LexisNexis or Osley to really search up cases or legislation. And they looked like they were built in the 1990s. It was, you know, when you when you search something up, you'd have the blue links with the white backgrounds. You'd get cases that were overturned or overruled, and just it, it was a poor search engine, poor experience. So Joe had this great idea where, you know, hey, I'm going to create this company that's going to be very Google-esque in nature. Mm. It's going to have this clean interface. If you search something up, it would actually be the search that you wanted to look up, and it would actually look like it was built in the 21st century. So that was the the idea behind Ebla, which was the company that that Joe founded. Um, he brought me on board as sort of uh, the COO of the business for a very short amount of time. We gave it a go. Uh, for me, during that period, you know, I was, I was juggling studies, I was juggling working at YBF, and then this thing came online as well. So I wouldn't say I contributed a huge amount to it. I, I don't want to, you know, take credit away from where credit is due. Joe was really the, the driver behind it. Um, after the program, I really took a step back to focus on studies again and focus on YBF again, but Joe really took it forward. And, um, you know, the, the website is still up, ebola.com. You can have a look. Um, Ebla stands for one of the oldest libraries in the world. That's where it gets his name from. And uh, I think in general, the Melbourne Accelerator program is great. I've got a good friend there named Maxine Lee who's running it. Uh, they provide really the, the resources that a student needs to understand entrepreneurship. The great thing about MAP is that they bring in all these different mentors from different parts of the startup industry and academia as well to help build the company. And for a company like Ebla, focused on the, the legal space, having the stamp of approval from university is really great. Melbourne University at that time was fifth in the world for the law school as well. So that was a big stamp of approval. So it, overall, it was a great experience. And um, there certainly have been a lot more accelerators that have cropped up in the past. So kudos to the university for being one of the first ones to really drive that student initiative. Mm, love that. Totally agree. So I want to go a bit deeper into 
what an accelerator even is and yeah. kind of, you know, I guess for some of our peers listening out there, they're thinking, you know, so how does the university fuel someone's idea? You know, how does this even happen? Like, or how do businesses fuel other people, biz- others' ideas or startup ideas? So talk to us, and obviously YBF Ventures is similar kind of, you know, thing. Yeah. So talk to us a bit about just the basics of an accelerator and kind of if you're a founder, if you're someone who just even has an idea, something that they think could turn into an awesome business, how you'd even go about getting involved. Yeah, sure. So a lot of confusion out there. What's the difference between an accelerator versus an incubator? Some co-working spaces brand themselves as sort of incubators and accelerators as well. Mm. And sure, they can have elements of it. So I'll start with the most basic one. You know, a co-working space is you pay a fee, you get a desk. Some co-working spaces have this whole community focus and events focus. Some don't, although they say they do. Moving one layer up, you've got this uh, this thing called an accelerator. An accelerator is a structured program, usually running for about three months, where they take in a specific company after vetting them thoroughly, and they, they accelerate, for lack of a better term, they accelerate your company's growth. And throughout that three-month program, they provide a range of resources. Some accelerators provide funding in exchange for equity. Some don't. Some provide just a mentorship. Some don't. So it's, it really depends on the accelerator. But at its core, it's a three-month program, extremely focused. After three months, there's usually what's called a demo day. So a day where they bring in together investors and you get to pitch your company in front of a room of investors. And that's really one of the big draws of accelerator programs because getting introductions to investors is usually pretty difficult. You need usually a warm introduction to the investor community to be taken seriously. And having gone through accelerators, it's it's a stamp of approval to say, this company has been vetted. This company has gone through a rigorous program to help get it to where it is, and investors should take a serious look. So that's an accelerator. And then you have incubators as well. Incubators are unstructured programs. There's no timeline. Um, incubators have no obligation to take in specific numbers of companies throughout a period. Uh, they do it on an ad hoc basis. They, they can help companies with technology, with strategy, with operations, introductions, but incubators are that yeah unstructured program where they help founders grow the business in exchange for equity or in exchange for a certain amount of funding. Again, varies by incubator to incubator. So uh, those are the rough differences between the, the different programs. Love that. It's making so much more sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure so many listening. So I want to go back into a bit about your story. So, you know, we got to the point where you're at Melbourne you're juggling, you know, yeah. university, uh, YBF and uh, the Accelerator program. What did that kind of teach you about yourself, that time there? Did you learn anything that, you know, you kind of brought on to now your role as, you know, the chief of staff here at YBF? Like, what did that time teach you? That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> you know, I think when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're so busy, you, you don't really pause to think. Mm. At that time, I had a goal, and that goal was when I graduated, I wanted to have a, have a job, <laughs> and I wanted to stay in the country. So that was my goal. And I didn't, want, I didn't want to fail university as well. I didn't want my parents to have to pay for another semester of me being here. What it taught me? That's a good question. I think time management, it taught me time mm. management. You know, my, my, when I was juggling the whole work and uh, university thing, you know, going into work at 8.30 to open up the space, staying till about 9, 9 p.m. because there was an event going on, and then studying all the way up to 1 a.m. was a pretty common occurrence, sometimes even more. It was really stressful, a high stressful environment. But I think it taught me the, the value of persistence, it showed me that if I really want something and if I put my mind to it, I could do it. Would I ever go through that experience again? 
Probably not. <laughs> I think there were a lot of different things I, I would have done. Work smarter, one of them. I think it was a tough period. It took a, it took a big toll. You know, a lot of my friends had a different kind of experience. When they graduated, you know, they took a year off, some of them, uh, a few of them just went off to travel instead of working. They had this really great university life where they met new friends. And again, I don't, I don't think there's a specific path that's right or wrong. You have to look at yourself and go, this is what I want. And I'm okay with letting go of the other opportunities. You know, I let go of that university experience. I didn't get to join the clubs. I didn't get to go, you know, on long road trips with friends because I had work to juggle and assignments to juggle and university to juggle. But it was a choice I made. It was a conscious choice I made that, that paid off, thankfully. For a lot of people, it, it might not pay off. But you got to be okay with the options. You got to be okay with the choices you make. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that was going out of university, I think that was a big learning for me as well, being okay with it. Because I think there was a year or two after leaving university where I kind of regretted not spending more time being immersed in the environment. I saw a lot of friends who made really, really great lifelong friends because they had spent so much time in university. I think I made a different group of friends. <laughs> Maybe people not my age, people a lot, people a lot older and more experienced in life than, than I am. But I, I think you know it, it was about being okay with the fact that I, I chose a different path and that's the path I'm on. And yeah, I've, I've got no regrets. So how do we get okay with the path we're on, you know, I think so many of us, you know, it's that fear to kind of do something a little bit different. Yeah. Like we were saying, take that risk, be the one who maybe doesn't have all the friends at uni, but you know, is, is in the entrepreneurial space instead. How do we, is it something that we can develop? How do we get okay with that? Yeah. I, in another life, if I didn't do startups, I'd probably want to study philosophy or, you know, <laughs> be, be a, be in academia or something. But, um, you know, I, I had gone through a lot of rough patches after leaving university, uh, a lot of obviously self-doubt. I think it's really common for a lot of us growing up as well, especially in this age where everything is so competitive. Everyone's trying to push as hard as they can to get the best jobs that they can, to live the best life that they can. Social media has probably exacerbated that kind of stuff as well. You see the, the highlight reels on Instagram or Facebook and all that kind of stuff, and you kind of go, hmm, you know, I'm, I'm trading off one life for another. Um, I think it's really important to have that introspection and to, to read from people wiser than we are. And there's a reason why certain philosophical texts have lasted the test of time. And for me, a big a big part of that was, uh, you know, the philosophy of stoicism. And I think in, in various circles in startup world in San Francisco or the U.S. or wherever it is, stoicism seems to have made this big resurgence as a philosophy. And, um, you know, one of the really great authors of uh, stoic texts is Marcus Aurelius. He was an emperor or one of the last emperors during the, the Roman golden age. And, you know, he was probably one of the, the most powerful people on earth. And yet he wrote a diary to himself about all the struggles he faced and how to overcome them, how to think about, you know, the way you, you tackle problems. And it, it's about, you know, acknowledging your struggle. It's, it's okay. It's about looking at yourself and saying, Hey, you know, I, I do have these negative emotions, but I do have control over my circumstances. You know, I'm not going to let my circumstances dictate how I approach a particular problem. So in, in this instance, you know, when, whenever I look back and go, oh, I should have spent more time in university, making more friends, having more fun, because I'm never going to get that back. It's about, you know, hey, you know, I need to be okay with that because I've chosen a different path. 
what I can change is not what just happened in the past. What I can change is what happens in the future. If my past dictates my future, I'm not going to be able to be the most effective or the best person I can be to help change my circumstance in the future. So I think it's really important to, to go back to you know these kinds of texts. Um, Zen Buddhism is another great one to look at as well. In, in a lot of aspects, I think religion has a lot to teach as well about how to tackle difficult problems in, in life. Um, yeah, I think it's about understanding yourself a bit a bit better, taking the time to pause and breathe and say, right, I need to understand myself and that's okay. That's, that's part of life. Mm. Love it. I love that. And I think that, I think it's just, it lends to everything. I yeah. think that, you know, when you start to understand yourself, start, start to see how you operate and start to just kind of be okay with where you're at and what you're doing, you can really start to excel and excel you did, Jason. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you've you've gone through that kind of stuff as well, right? Like starting totally. the podcast. Totally. Uh, I mean, I'm, I want to know your experience as well because I'm sure it was really daunting looking for that first person mm. to talk to without, not, you've got a portfolio of people now, but you know, what was it like when you yeah. got that first person? Yeah, though? sure. Thanks for the question. So um, for me, it was it was very daunting. Literally, yeah. he was saying, you know, I was someone who I was in my final year of uni. You know, I similar to you, I did commerce degree, but I did commerce arts, diploma in Chinese over at Monash. And, um, you know, I kind of this entrepreneurship path had never had never kind of I'd never really been exposed to yeah. apart from, you know, my parents who are entrepreneurs. But in terms of around me, all my friends were kind of going on to the traditional roles and whatnot. And I was totally on track to be doing that, you know. And then I thought it just, um, you know, I had a moment where I was like, actually, there's wonder if there's something else that I could be doing. And that's how the idea for the podcast sparked. And yeah. it literally was super daunting. I reached out to so many people, probably about 50 wow. um, yeah. on LinkedIn, similar to you when you were going for your uh, job search early on. And um, only about, oh, I was about 10 that responded. Yeah. Um, you know, I had no platform I had no website I was using my normal gmail account um you know it, there was nothing that really showed that this was a real thing but I think it was just my passion clearly translated in some way um and what was phenomenal was that my first uh, response was from a Forbes 30 under 30 recipient in New York wow. um Alexa Buckley and she was actually one of she was actually the first interview I released um back in October but Definitely. It was, you know, I think it's the small wins when you start to see yeah. them come up, then you can start to go, okay, that difficult challenge I had to face, that risk I took, it's kind of worth it. So, yeah. Wow. That's a great yeah. story. Very cool. Okay. Love that. So I want to go into now a bit about your time. Obviously, um, I want to hear about your time at YBF Ventures, but yeah. before that, the other organizations you've been a part of as an advisor, as a mentor, and as a um, um, as an investor. So one that I found super interesting was your involvement with um, the Founder Institute. Yeah, sure. Been involved in for three years. So talk to me a bit about that and kind of how you got involved and, and what you do there. Yeah, sure. So I guess, you know, at YBF, well, I'll start with a bit of a history of YBF because it, it brings a bit of context to all these various things that we run. So... We started out as investors initially. We had a small venture fund, and this was back probably in 2011. Um, you know, the vent venture funds invest in startups, and back then it was hard to figure out where to put your money into because there was no space to bring together startups, and that's how YBF came about. YBF was started. You know, it, it's called. It was called the York Butter Factory. We've since rebranded to YBF Ventures. And it was called York Butter Factory because we were based out of the initial York Butter Factory building, which is a historical building here in, in Melbourne. And we identified that building as a place where we could bring together entrepreneurs, 
uh, startups, investors, corporate partners together to, to really help drive that innovation ecosystem. Initially, it was to help us find deal flow. And Founder Institute was one of those programs that came knocking at our door. It started in Silicon Valley by a fellow named Deo Resi. And uh, he's, his claim, one of his claims to fame was that he was a roommate with uh, Elon Musk or something, <laughs> an inve- early, early investor in um, SpaceX and whatnot. <laughs> but um, he started the Founder Institute, and we, we know the folks who brought it down here to Melbourne. And because we were one of the first spaces in Melbourne to really be entrepreneur-centric, they identified us as a really great space to, to host the Founder Institute. And the Founder Institute is it's a, it's a unique accelerator program, I'd say. You know, it, it's a structured program, but it's catered towards people who have day jobs and who are thinking about creating startups on the side. So they held their sessions in the evenings and my involvement was going in, you know, giving the occasional talk about, hey, this is how you raise venture capital money based on our experience and walking people through that entrepreneurship process. My job wasn't to tell them this is what you do for your company. My job was to to show them what companies usually did mm. and for them to then make informed decisions rather than going in, um, you know, going in blind. So that was, the, that was the crux of the role. The Founders Institute, yeah, I'd say it's an interesting program for anyone looking to, to try a startup who's got a day job, who can't really dedicate their full time towards running a dedicated accelerator program. So, you know, it's, it's still running to this day. Very cool. So, is it only over in Silicon Valley, or is it, do they? No, have no. So they have okay. yeah, they have ver- various chapters all around the world. Melbourne's one of them. I'm sure they've got one in Sydney as well. I'm pretty sure. Uh, Brisbane probably has another one as well, and they're 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 everywhere. Cool, love it. Okay, very cool. Um, so. There are so many questions I want to ask you about around that process that you were talking about that you actually taught um, those early founders. So, but before I do, I just kind of want to go into um, a bit about another organization you're also a part of, which is um, Adventure Capital Venture Management. Um, so, it says you're an investor at this uh, at this venture capitalist firm. So talk to me a bit about that. You know, once again, you know, so cool how you're involved in all of these different organisations and kind of it seems that YBF has kind of fueled your involvement in them. But talk to us a bit about your role there and, and what you do. Yeah, sure. So Adventure Capital was actually the venture fund that started it all. So wow. the founders of Venture Capital uh, are the same founders of York Butter Factory ah. and now YBF. So the fund came right. first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we had okay. it in a different branding. So yeah, okay. the, the fund came first and it, it was a small fund. Uh, we've got a great portfolio of companies, I think. And yeah, yeah. So Darcy and Stuart were the founders of Venture Capital and they are the founders of the York Butter Factory as well. Right now what we're doing is that, you know, we're not in the York Butter Factory building anymore. Mm-hmm. At the York Butter Factory, we had probably around 40 desks. It was a small space. And now we've moved into this awesome building, which has 399 desks. We've got 500 members. And I think, you know, as, as startups mature, you know, when startups are young, they can do whatever they want with no repercussions. But <laughs> as they get to a certain level of maturity, they need to, yeah, they need to grow up as well. And for us, growing up was about you know, getting in the right leadership as well. So we've got a new CEO who's who's been really amazing. He's led our company for the last six months, uh, named Farley Blackman. 
um, that was step one, um, you know, getting the right leadership. Step two of growing up was figuring out how we were going to consolidate all our different brands <laughs> under one single roof. So, you know, my role at, at venture capital was to look at companies, um, be, be that first gatekeeper in terms of vetting companies, um, because, and I think you find a very similar structure in a lot of venture funds as well. You have associates and their job is to go out there and to talk to as many companies as they can. Their job is to, you know, venture capital funds are often an exercise in marketing. You need to be out there for companies to know you exist and for the best companies to want to be with you, you have to show value. So my role was really to be out there, talk to as many companies as I can. We had a lot of companies approaches as well. So I was sort of like that first line of defense, you know, looking at the companies, seeing if they were at the right stage for us to talk to. Um, venture funds also have specific focuses on different industries or different stages of a company's life cycle. So my job was to make sure that they fit within you know, our, our investment philosophy and then to sort of take them to the partners to make an investment decision. And part of that as well is doing due diligence on companies. So making sure that, you know, they are who they say they are looking at their fundamentals, doing analysis and competitors and all that kind of stuff. So I think that that taught us a lot in terms of how to approach that process of fundraising, because right now we also have a portfolio of companies that we've co-founded ourselves. Mm -hmm. So We've got a bunch of different businesses out there and we're working to consolidate everything. Yeah, I love this. Okay, great. So I want to go deep into, you know, when do people even get investment? Like, what does this investment cycle look like? You know, you said that you were at the forefront, you would assess whether or not, you know, this company was ready. Just because, you know, so for so many of us, you know, listening, if we have an idea or maybe we're yeah. a bit further down the track with our idea and, you know, we're thinking, you know, is it the right time to get investors on board? So talk us through that process. Yeah, sure, sure. So there's a lot of jargon in investing world. And uh, sometimes you forget that, you know, it's not normal language. So um, at the very start, you've got this stage called bootstrapping. And bootstrapping is true to the word, you know, you putting in your own resources, your own time, your own energy to start a company from the ground up. So that's probably when you're at the early stages, I'd say, um, you know, before you even look at investors, you gotta, you got to lay the foundations, you know, find, build the right team, at least come up with a business plan, maybe try building your, your product to an MVP stage or a minimum viable product stage, try to get a bit of, a bit of traction, a bit of customers. And then the next stage is what you call seed funding. You know, again, true to the word, you know, seeds sort of grow and they sprout. And that's what seed funding is about, helping, helping you grow and, and sprout into a bigger company. And, you usually go to angel investors for that kind of money. Angel investors, again, another another interesting term. Uh, they're really high net worth individuals, people with spare amounts of money and who want to really invest in seeing cool things happen. So th there are smaller investors who sort of invest in that angel stage as well, but very few. And, you know, this angel seed funding stage varies from country to country. If you look in San Francisco, you know, a seed stage investment is probably north of a million dollars. Whereas here, it's probably 50K to 200K, I'd say. So it varies. And after you go from the seed stage, you know, you can also raise money from friends and family, obviously, for the seed stage. And then you've got your Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D. And they're sort of to denominate how mature your company is. And again, it's, it's a lot of art more than it is science. 
a Series A will vary from, you know, in different locations as well. So a Series A in the US might be 20 mil, here it might be north of a mil. So that's that's usually the stage. You know, how do you know whether you're ready for investment? Uh, I don't think there's a right time for investment at all. I think it's a conscious decision. I think you need to raise if you have a few key goals. You, you need to raise money if you want to grow quickly. Um, you need to raise money if you don't have any cash and if you need to feed yourself. That's really important as well. And, uh, you know, it, equity is probably one of the most expensive things you can give away, right? Equity is giving away a part of your company. So you also have to find the right investors. And that's probably where a lot of startups don't, don't think about. Because when, you, when you're building a startup and you see early signs of life and you kind of think, hey, maybe someone will put money into this so that I can grow or I can leave my day job to focus on this, you know, for the full, full, full time or I can grow my team or whatever it is. And you don't, you don't stop to think, you know, what kind of investors do I want? You just look at the money and go, all right, I'll take the money and I'll allocate my money to X, Y, Z. But investors have a very material effect on your company. Some investors, they're really great in the sense that they'll open up their networks so that if you need to raise more money in the future, they'll do that. Or if you need to access customers, they'll do that for you. Some investors get really hands-on and micromanage. Some investors jump in, jump into the company and go, hey, why aren't you doing items X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G? Uh, or you know, even looking at the terms of investment. You know, there, there are a bunch of terminologies that come with investments. And, you know, I think founders should should read up to understand these things. There's a there's a great book by Brad Feld, who's a venture investor in the U.S. Um, that talks about you know the various terms of understanding uh, a venture capital funding round. It's called Venture Deals, and I highly encourage anyone to read that book before they go out to get investments. Uh, ultimately, yeah, raising money. It's about finding the right balance between what you're raising, who you're raising it from, and if you really need the money because you're giving away a portion of your business. Mm. So where does your interest in this space come from? So obviously, you know, you studied economics, finance. Is it that background or is it just a genuine interest in helping businesses fuel businesses? Yeah, yeah. I honestly think it was a big part of it was my dad because, you know, I I always knew if it wasn't technology, I'd have to be an entrepreneur (laughs) in in some different aspect (laughs) of life, I guess. Um, You know, I, I was very fortunate in that after a couple of years of working YBF, Darcy and Stuart made me uh, a co-owner of the business as well. They gave me a portion of equity in the business and that really cemented you know, my, my want to continue contributing to YBF for the long term. And you know, it's, it's not uncommon for companies to give away equity to their, their team members, um, especially if they're really contributing. So I was really fortunate in that regard in, in the sense that they, they saw that I was really contributing in, in that sense. And um, yeah, I think my interest really stemmed from my dad because I saw how entrepreneurship could unlock opportunities for you that weren't there. I saw how it gave you the freedom to sort of dictate what you wanted to do in life. And I, I enjoyed that risk. I, I enjoy feeling like I'm pushing myself and constantly trying. And I'm really fortunate because a lot of the challenges that we face in this business and a lot of the challenges that a lot of these companies face in this environment as well, they were challenges that I saw from a young age. You know, things like, hey, how do I deal with a team member who's, you know, wanting to leave the company to go to a big company who can pay more? Or challenges like, oh, I can't find a customer. Or, you know, it's so stressful because I, I don't know where my next funding round is going to be. And I saw all that with my dad. So I could empathize with founders in a sense. I could, I could sort of empathize where they were coming from and sort of take, you know, if 
I apply a lens, right? Like if, if a company is going through a hard time and they share these problems with me, I'd go, you know, what would I tell my dad <laughs> or how would my dad approach this problem? So I was really fortunate in that regard that I, I got to saw that firsthand. And that's why I think I'm really interested and why my interest has grown in this area because I've seen it from a young age. It's what, I've, what I grew up in. Um, it's what my career has grown up in as well. And it's what I plan on doing in the future for a long time. I love it, Jason. This is such interesting conversation. Yeah, I'm um, enjoying it too. I absolutely love it. Okay, so how can we be world class? You know, if someone's got you know out there, founder, one of our peers listening, and they've got this really great idea, they may be working, been working on it for six months. How do they become world class? Yeah, sure. Good question. Very I think, yeah. difficult question. Surrounding yourself by great people, I think, is probably the most important thing. You always have to surround yourself with people who are better than you, right? And I think that's part of what draws me to being in this environment as well, because you, you, you interact with such intelligent, driven, you know, unique people that it always pushes you to, to do more. And you have to pick people right, you know. People, people can be different on the surface to they are on the inside, and finding the right kinds of mentors and people to work with can really drive you to be world-class because you're always aspiring for something greater. I think everyone is always on the journey, especially when we're so young. You know, we're constantly involving year on year. And there's a, there's a saying that we're the average of the five people we're closest with. So pick those five people. Pick those five people well. And I think we can look to history as well to figure out how to be world-class. You know, I think... You look to the history, you look, uh, you look at the present, you look at the future. In terms of history, you can learn a lot of things from the mistakes that other people have made in the past and how they've overcome those mistakes. Again, going back to that stoic philosophy, you have to be world-class at managing your emotions. How do you do that? You need a framework. And there are historical frameworks out there on how people have solved problems and overcome adversity and thought up new ideas. In terms of the present, surround yourself with good people, be in a good environment, take care of your health, you know, take care of your, your mental state, be aware when you're feeling down and not feeling down and manage accordingly. And in the future, you know, surround yourself with people again who, who are thinking about the future and who are smarter than yourself and who are dreaming up new ideas and leverage those strengths to create a world-class team because world-class is usually not a single person. World-class is a collection of people because you can't, you can't do life alone and you need the right people around you to do that. I love it, Jason. This conversation has been so insightful um, and I've learned so much personally and I know everyone listening is just also in awe of all of you, all that you've taught us. Um, so that brings me to um, my second last question. But before I do go into that, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Jason, and, you know, all of the incredible work you've done and that you're doing here at YBF. Um, it's actually it's just so inspiring that you know when you see people manifesting you know what they're actually pass passionate about and doing that every day and it's so evident um so I think there's something that we can all that's something we can all take away and learn really from. appreciate it thank you of course so that brings me to my second last question which yes. is what is it like to be someone who's you know you're 26 years old you're super super young you're doing what you're most passionate about every day you're in a community that is literally fueling you know um, you know everything it's just it's it's lively it's fun it's, um, it's difficult it's challenging they're fueling all of these emotions what does that feel like for you for you what does it feel like for me mm. uh, you know 
it changes on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> some days you feel great, you know, you're like, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And some days you go, hmm, you know, how do, I, how do I push myself even more? How do I push myself even further? So I, I think you no know, two days are the same. It always, it always changes. And I think, you know, it, it's important to, to notice these changes because, you know, they're, they're a sign of your subconscious telling you, hey, you know, there are certain things you need to be appreciative of or there's certain things you need to improve on. But I am really fortunate, I think, above all. I think I, I feel extremely fortunate that I was born into a family that, you know, has supported me throughout this journey. From when I was a young age all the way up to now, I'm fortunate to have, you know, a dad who took risks in entrepreneurship. And I was fortunate enough to have that exposure from a young age. A lot of people don't have that exposure. I was very fortunate to have a mom who, who left her job to take care of us and to, to give us a comfortable life growing up so that we could, we could try to be more than what our circumstances had dictated. Um, I'm fortunate enough to you know, have met great people that I work with on a daily basis. I'm fortunate that, um, you know, that people around me work hard all the time and they, they're great people, they mean well. So you know, when, when you're in startup world, I think it's always a race. It's always a race to build the biggest thing, the best thing, the next thing. I think a lot of people don't pause and they don't, take a breather to appreciate what they have so that they can then focus on the next thing in a more clear and um, focused manner. So yeah, I think for me, it's about, you know, realizing that I am fortunate and trying to pay that forward as well, I think is really important. You know, I think things like what you're doing is really great because it's helping to inspire the next generation of people because, you know, for all you know, you might, you might have caught the ear of a listener who, who had not known anything about this entrepreneurship thing and who, you know, their first landing point was your podcast. And then maybe that inspired them to, to start something new and to change the circumstances of their life. So I think the giving back aspect is really important. And yeah, it's, it's always, you know, there's always going to be a race to try and figure out what the next big thing is. But I think, you know, personally, I'm in a great position to try and figure out how I can change the future. And I think that's really great. Yeah. I love it. Perfect. So just to our last question here, um, which is, what do you think is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Yeah, well, I think you have to, in order to focus, in order to be the best that you can be, in order to be the most intelligent you can be, I think you really need passion because passion will take you through the down times, the hard times, and it'll help you ride the, the, the high times to remind yourself that you always have to work harder as well. So yeah, passion pulls you through difficult times so that you can achieve more. And, you know, some people don't, you know, some people don't have that privilege of working in roles that are passionate about. Some people are put into circumstances where they have to do something. But, you know, again, it's always a choice. It's always a choice. And I think you can learn to be passionate about different things, whether it's passionate about your family, you work for your family, or passionate about your job itself. Hopefully it's, you know, all these things converging into a single really great intrinsic passion. Sometimes it won't. But passion pulls you through hard times. And I think that's really important. Love that, Jason. Thanks so much. I so appreciate your time. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah, head on to our website, ybfventures.com or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that fun stuff. Love it. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe 
to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played. And leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>